Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is drummer and educator Daniel Glass. First of all, Sony has expanded its unrecouped balance program. So what does that mean? Well, understand that when you sign a record deal, and it doesn't matter with what kind of label, big one or small one, they are basically lending you money to both record your album, maybe go on tour, and market your album. But it's still a loan that you have to pay back. So you can think of this in terms of a small local bank is going to give you a much better deal, and that would be the equivalent of an indie record label. On the other hand, a big bank like Wells Fargo or Chase or Bank of America, the deal isn't going to be quite as good, although they do have some sort of marketing power that you wouldn't get otherwise. Regardless, you still have to repay that money back, and that's called recoupment. Some artists never recoup the advance that they get, the money that's actually put out for them to make their album or albums. As a result, they'll never see a dime in royalties. Now, when it comes to streaming, many legacy artists have never seen a dime from streaming. But Sony actually tried to change that last year. They announced a program where they would no longer apply existing unrecouped balances to earnings from eligible artists who had signed prior to the year 2000. But the stipulation was they couldn't have an advance since that time. This was also extended not only to artists, but the songwriters then last July. This February, Warner Brothers, and then in March, Universal also got on board with the same idea. But now Sony is actually expanding this unrecouped balance program to even more artists and songwriters. Now artists and songwriters who've been with Sony for 20 years or more and haven't received an advance in that time are now going to be included. So the result of this is, guess what? Legacy artists that have signed a long time ago will finally start to see some royalties. How much? Well, probably not that much, but it's better than nothing at all. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineers Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. Now, the last podcast, we talked about how Gibson guitars kind of equals dad rock in the eyes of many of today's musicians. Here's a story that kind of brings that to light. In 2019, Gibson filed a lawsuit against Dean Guitars for copying the shape of the Flying V, the Explorer, the ES series, the SG series, and the Dovewing headstock. Dean fired back and said, these shapes are pretty much generic and therefore they're unprotectable. So it took three years, but finally the jury has said that Dean has indeed infringed on those designs by selling lookalike guitars. So you'd think that'd be a really big victory for Gibson, but not so much. It turns out that Gibson took way too long to sue. And as a result, the jury said, well, the company really didn't suffer very much actual harm and therefore only awarded the company $4,000 
rather than the $7 million that Gibson had wanted. Now, if you look at a little bit of history here, the Flying V came out in 1957, and the first copy that Dean made was 1976. But Gibson didn't really get their trademark game going until, oh, 2010 or so. So there's a lot of time that went by where the trademarks were somewhat assumed, but weren't particularly legal. Now, this came back to bite Gibson in Europe in a trademark fight, where in 2019, they actually lost over the trademark of the Flying V, and then lost on two subsequent appeals. This particular ruling is very likely to be appealed as well. And it may end up that Gibson will not have a trademark on some of the items that you would most associate with the company. So it's something to keep an eye on if you're a guitar player, if you're a vintage guitar fan. On the other hand, if you're a newer player that really likes Fenders instead, that's probably not something that's on your radar at all. My guest this week is Daniel Glass, who's an award-winning drummer, author, historian, and educator based in New York City. He's widely recognized as an authority on classic American drumming and the evolution of American popular music. Daniel has recorded and performed all over the world with a diverse roster of top artists, including Brian Setzer, Bette Midler, Liza Minnelli, Jose Feliciano, the Budapest Jazz Orchestra, and even KISS frontman Gene Simmons. Since 2011, he's been the house drummer every Monday night at New York's legendary Birdland Jazz Club. For two years running, Daniel was also voted as one of the top five R&B drummers in the world by readers of Modern Drummer and Drum Magazine. As an educator, Daniel has published five books and three DVDs, created a curriculum that's used by hundreds of music educators in schools across the United States and Canada, and is a regular contributor to publications like Modern Drummer, Drum, and Classic Drummer. During the interview, we talked about what caused the drum kit to evolve from marching band, how one of the original duties for a drummer was to provide sound effects, how the hi-hat got its name, programs for homeschool students, what it's like to put out a record in today's business climate, and much more. I spoke with Daniel from his home in Manhattan. The last time... You gave an abbreviated history of the drums and how they came to being because, you know, there was a lot of stuff that I certainly didn't know. And we we left off kind of abruptly because of time. So catch us up on that. Essentially, the the story of the drum set and the, and the history and evolution of this particular instrument is fascinating because it, it, it's, it parallels the history of the United States in on so many different levels. And... Uh, sort of the way I bookend that evolution is is around the time of, of the Civil War, sort of the 1850s, 1860s, when there really was no such thing as a drum set, but drummers began to take sort of the three main components in a military drum section, which would be the bass drum, the snare drum, and the cymbals, and began to try to figure out ways to have one person play two or all three of these instruments. And that's sort of the very beginnings of the drum set. What was the reason for that, Daniel? Well, economical, mm. obviously, considerations. Um, entertainment was really beginning to evolve, and which certainly took a, a big leap forward after uh, the Civil War, when the country was you know, reunited and the economies began to move forward again. 
but you you already had um, minstrel shows, circuses, other forms of entertainment evolving. Uh, vaudeville, you know, was 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 really beginning to or was becoming a very you know big theatrical shows. So you had budgets, you had constrained spaces, orchestra pits, or it was a traveling show. Uh, and if you could have one drummer fulfill the job of several drummers, multiple drummers, then people could save money and save space, essentially. I think the other thing is that drums, you know, certainly during the Civil War, there was a, a lot of focus on the drums, being that that drums were an essential part of military life. So there were many, many military bands. Obviously, at this time, the, the musicians were responsible for uh, telling the soldiers what to do, you know, and so that's why you had drums and brass primarily, or fifes, loud instruments that on a battlefield or in a camp could communicate orders to, to many soldiers and let them know what was supposed to be going on, and, you know, when to retreat and all these kind of things. People would, over cannon fire and artillery and all that, be able to hear what, what they were supposed to be doing or how you were supposed to have large troop movements. So I think after the Civil War, it was sort of like you, you couldn't put the genie back in the bottle. Drums were kind of more a part of what was going on. And so someone like John Philip Sousa began to modernize what a military band was about and sort of turned it into something that was more for entertainment. So I think that was also happening around this time period. Um, so in a lot of ways, the drums became a more essential part of entertainment. You know, you would expect to have a drummer be involved because may, because uh, certainly with Sousa and composers that came before and military music became popular music. You know, it was really one of America's first forms of unique popular music that wasn't something kind of copied from, from Europe. You know, so Sousa as a composer and as a, the, the, he um, was very involved in, in updating brass instruments, uh, valved instruments that could be, um, so he could compose more sophisticated ways for them. And so then it became, well, if this is going to be music for listening, rather than just getting soldiers up and down the field, if this is going to become popular music, then how do we integrate the drums into this? So all of that was happening. And I think then the need for a drum set suddenly emerged, you know? If I may, who was kind of like the father of modern drum technique? Well, there's, I mean, the military drummers, when you say modern drum technique, I'm not really... Okay. okay. It's, it, well, we, we might... Uh, well, uh, what I mean is a drummer sitting behind a trap kit and actually sitting and playing all of the different drums rather than, like you said before, there was... A different player for the symbols or for the for all of them well i i mean rudimental technique really was the was the basis you know the the earliest drum set players we didn't really call it we, we used the term traps the term like what i do today as a drummer drum set player i would have been called a trap drummer in in those days late 1800s and and into the first few decades of the 20th century because i always talk about that the the role of the drummer was really threefold we had, you know, there had been drums in classical music. There had been drums in uh, military music, of course, very different usages. And drummers were employed in, in theatrical settings, but also in some of these other settings to, to provide sound effects. You know, so 
the drummer, the, the role of the, the trap drummer, we might say prior to the early 1930s, was it was uh, uh, to provide orchestral, you know, type of percussion um, when that was needed, because that was still very popular and widespread. So every drum set or trap set would have, you know, a glockenspiel or some handheld uh, instruments, maybe a tambourine uh, or a cowbell, you know, a woodblock. And a lot of this, uh, a Chinese symbol, you know, which people know what a China symbol is. It's kind of almost like a sound effect symbol. You wouldn't use it as, as you would other symbols unless you wanted to get a particular effect. So orchestral elements, you know, uh, would, and, and you see a lot of the early pictures of the early drum sets. It looks like a mishmash of, of stuff. There is a bass drum and a snare drum, but also uh, chimes or tambourine, you know, or, or whatever. And you see in a lot of the early music that was written for drum set, there'll be a little break on a xylophone, you know, for a bar and a half or a timpani, timpani, very common on, on a lot of these kinds of kits. So uh, chimes. So the the earliest drum set players were just different. They were, you know, one part orchestral, one part timekeeper that we might say the, the bass drum and snare drum were, were there for timekeeping, like as in marching. And there was a, a technique that was used early on before the evolution of a pedal. Pedal didn't, wasn't there at the beginning of the drum set, a, a technique called double drumming was there, which involved uh, a drummer playing. If you imagine uh, they had these huge bass drums, you know, these giant military 30 inch or more bass drums, and they would take the snare drum and put it on a chair at a very steep angle facing the bass drum so that the drummer could use the sticks to play both the bass drum and the snare drum at the same time. So they'd go back and forth. Boom, oh. chick, boom, chick, boom. And that technique called double drumming was very, actually quite widespread. The more sort of early photos I look at from the first couple decades of the 20th century, the, some of the first snare drum stands that they created were made to balance the drum at an incredibly steep angle. And the only reason for that was so you could you could go down and access your bass drum and be able to get back over to the snare, you know, which was yeah. tilted down toward the bass drum. So well, even after pedals, double drumming as a technique still survived and drummers would go back and forth. When did the hi-hat come into being? The hi-hat didn't show up until the late 20s when, you know, a, a popular method of timekeeping in addition to, if you, if you step back for a second, the, the original drum sets, bass, drum, and cymbal. Now the cymbal that they used, they would either mount it onto the, the bass drum in some way. It could sit sort of on top of the bass drum and it could be struck that way. It could be on like a little stand. And of course they didn't, the, 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 it was very primitive. The, the cymbal would have like a, a leather strap and they would just hang it on a hook. So it just sort of dangled above the bass drum, you know, and, and the, the stand would sort of just be clamped to the hoop of the bass drum. So that would sort of come up and over and the cymbal would just dangle. Another type of cymbal they would use was they developed a contraption that would also clamp to the bass drum, but the cymbal would be, I guess, almost flush with the, the bass drum facing out. And they had what was called a clanger, a metal clanger on the early bass drum pedals. So when you struck the bass drum, the clanger would hit the cymbal at the same time. Mm. So, you know, and that was 
just awful having a metal clang or hit a metal cymbal. Needless to say that even though you see this on drum sets everywhere, there's hardly any recordings with this you know particular thing. But the idea was that a bass drummer in a in a marching band would would have one cymbal mounted and they would hold the other cymbal in their hand and go, psh, 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 you know, hitting the bass drum and the cymbal at the same time. So those were those were some early you know ways that they that they tackled the drum set and uh, what was called an overhang pedal was already in use by the late uh, 1870s you know uh, or late 1860s I have a, a memoir by a drummer that was written when when this drummer was an older man in the 1930s and he wrote about a time when he was a young man say 50 years earlier I think the book is even called like 60 years a drummer or something or 50 years a drummer so he wrote about when he was a young man and they had what was called overhang pedal which was the first kind of stab at a bass drum pedal and it was it was a piece of wood that came across the top of the bass drum and there was some a spring along top of that and that would sort of be attached to a, a long rod that would come down that had a bass drum beater on it and then under the the, the beater ball there'd be a, a, a leather strap attached to a piece of wood and you pushed on the piece of wood and that brought that that beater forward to strike the drum and even though I mean I've seen a few of these overhang pedals they had like 10 or 12 different parts that had to be assembled so they're hard to find today because you'd have to kind of almost make one yourself so the standing bass drum pedal began to, to show up there's a million different designs in the very end of the 19th century but the the sort of the the standard and honestly this is a a design we still use today exactly was the was the pedal that was patented by the Ludwig brothers Ludwig and Theobald Ludwig mm -hmm. uh, uh William and Theobald Ludwig William F Ludwig of course sort of the, the grandfather of of the modern drum company you might say in 1909 so you know once 1909 comes the overhang pedal disappears really quick and you asked about the hi-hat they were still using these mounted cymbals and choking them on uh, on what was called the afterbeat so it was a small drum set there was no hi-hat yet there was no sort of tom-toms as we know them there were no crash cymbals so drummers played time on their snare drum still in the tradition of marching but they adapted it in the early 20th century to give it a more of a swinging kind of a feel as as ragtime and jazz became more popular so to since you didn't have a lot of different places to keep time drummers would just go to a different surface to do their rudimental drumming they would do it on a cowbell they would do it on a rim they would do it on the shell of the bass drum and those were all accepted timekeeping techniques another accepted timekeeping technique was what we call choke and release so they would come up to a, a small mounted cymbal and they would you know bass drum on one and three and so your afterbeat on two and four boom 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 right mm -hmm. But that was very cumbersome you had to reach up to the symbol the symbol was waggling all over the place you had to use two hands so in the late 20s a bunch of different ideas came up for how we could combat this one was what are called hand sock symbols and by sock there's a lot of debate about what that term means but i think most people agree it's literally like hitting the symbol socking the symbol so a hand sock symbol meant you it, it the design could be like a scissors where you held two handles and squeeze them together and on the other end of the handles 
were two small symbols. So you could make that choking chick chick sound mm. by by bringing the, the hands together. So there were many different designs of that. And then you could use hold a stick and you could you could play uh, that. And I have a, a really great instructional book from the late 20s, which is like, you know, 60 hot hand sock patterns. You know, yeah. there's some famous studio drummer, you know, holding up his hand socks yeah, with yeah. his stick. Hot, hot, you know, because jazz at that time was popular. So hot jazz sock patterns. And you hear actually the great uh, New Orleans drummer, Zudi Singleton, playing the hand socks on um, some early Louis Armstrong records from the late 20s. And then they also, another idea in addition to the hand sock was a foot sock. And there was something called a snowshoe symbol, same kind of an idea. You had two symbols and you would slip your foot through a, like a leather strap and you lift your foot up and put it down and that made the same effect. So they were sort of saying, well, we got this bass drum pedal, why not come up with something similar? Mm. Was the idea strictly, this is going to help as a timekeeper or was this a special effect? It was started out as a special effect. And I should speak for a moment about special effects because with as vaudeville became more popular and then with the advent of radio in, I don't know exactly the teens and 20s and silent film, which had been, you know, started in the early 20th century and was extremely popular. All of these different forms of entertainment required sound effects, certainly uh, the silent film and drummers. There was a whole industry of trap drumming specifically for people working in the movie houses. And so that, that was the, you know, they didn't play drum sets. They literally had their catalogs are full of bird whistles and, you know, things to imitate engines and just incredible. I did a, a clinic a few years ago at a percussive art society convention where I assembled four drummers and percussionists, one of whom has maybe the largest collection of these, traps and sound effects and we got four pieces of of silent film and recreated what the trap drummers would do you know crazy car chases and was this all notated out no in fact there was almost we've looked for music uh there was i mean these these you know these drummers it's sort of like big band drumming later on there might be some basic notation but a big band drummer is it's a lot of his left to interpretation so it's the same with with these folks. They would they would just look at what was happening on the on the stage or look at what was happening on the screen. And obviously, the the drum companies had were listening to feedback. You know, there were many kind of bird whistles and duck calls and uh, all kinds of of, uh, of animal noises and gunshots. You know, and uh, train noises. Trains were real big. You know, at that time and automobiles and it got very wind there were huge machines to make wind and rain thunder you know in in the biggest uh you know uh theaters uh, they had these very very elaborate elaborate setups so it really got to be kind of quite an art form and a drummer might sit down at a drum set and then they would run and play a, a thing on the mallets and then they would make you know noises and it would all have to be very choreographed a lot of broadway musicals today you know, still require drummers to have access to all these different uh, whistles and, you know, train whistle. I mean, that police whistle, you know, yeah. uh, these kind of things. So talking about the hi-hat, I know I've sort of took a, a sidetrack, but the earliest hi-hats were part of this kind of sound effect thing. They weren't taken seriously as timekeepers. And I actually have a catalog page from 
I think around 1930, that, you know, I should say with the hi-hat, notice it's called a hi-hat. One of the design foot sock designs that sat on the ground that was low down was called a low boy. So the hi-hat, you know, was sort of a reaction to that. They quickly said, well, why, you know, let's do the hand sock and the foot sock as one thing. So they raised up the, the foot sock and then you could use one hand to play it and you could use one foot to open and close it. You could get all those effects with only using one hand or no hands, you know, when it, when it became sort of the two and four in a, in a jazz groove. And so very quickly, the, the low boy was, yeah, and the hand socks, they were only around, they were transitional instruments. And once the hi-hat showed up, then that, you know, that was, that was, uh, became a, a part of timekeeping. But I have a, a recording that I did that was based on, it, it was a great band in California. I lived in, in LA, as you know, for about 20 years. And I worked with a lot of the people that made, you know, earlier styles of music and was involved in that world. And the, one of the artists did a, an album of 1920s music that was all arrangements from California bands. And the last song on the album was a guy named Les Height. Maybe you've heard of that name. He was a relatively well-known big band leader. But what's cool about him was that his drummer in the late 20s and early 30s was Lionel Hampton. And there's a recording of the song Harlem that Lionel Hampton plays on. Of course, people know Lionel for being a great vibraphone player, but he was a terrific drum set player as well. And maybe you've seen some clips on YouTube. And he's integrating the hi-hat and using it in a way that is more like a sound effect. He's not really using it as a timekeeper. That's around 1929, 1930. Around the same year, 1930, New York, Fletcher Henderson, who was kind of after Duke Ellington was probably the most of that era, the most important arranger in terms of moving a, a big band or a, a, a small group, a little big band, 10 pieces or so, uh, from having more of a New Orleans type of a feel into what would become the more sophisticated big band sound of the 1930s. And he has a recording from about 1930, which a lot of people say is, if not the first, one of the first uses of the hi-hat in a, in a, as a time, as like, you know, yeah, yeah. the drummer actually doing that. And it's already kind of fully formed. The drummer's a guy named Walter Johnson, but it's sort of like drummers, it just fell in real quick. And it makes sense because you close the hi-hat on two and four, doing what's called the afterbeat. So D, D, the D, the one closed, three closed. So that, it just naturally kind of became that way. There was never sort of a period where, you know, some jazz drummers played the hi-hat this way and others played it that way. Everybody just sort of agreed this is this is the pattern, you know. I love the, the history here, but I do want to touch on some other things here. I was looking at your website and something that I had missed before jumped out at me, programs for homeschool students. <laughs> yeah. What brought uh, thank that you on? for noticing that. Yeah. Um, I have been teaching um, homeschool kids. It was just, it's really an interesting story. A mom called me one day. I, I, you know, I teach drums privately. And she called and said, my daughter, I'm looking for somebody. I think a piano player friend of mine somehow recommended me. And she said, uh, I homeschool my daughter. There's a lot of kids that are homeschooled in New York. I live in New York City. And uh, 
she said, I'm looking for somebody to tutor my, my daughter in, in history and she loves music. So could you give her like music and history? And I, I had already been studying the drums and the history of the drums for many years. I had a DVD that looked at, like I said, a hundred years of, of drumming. So I said, sure. Cause I was just looking for any way to make a living, you know, and I thought this would be interesting. And what ended up happening is that I developed a, a curriculum for her where I went on YouTube and I found tons of videos of showing American history in music, uh, American music in, and, and also history in its various forms. I tutored her for about one semester and then her mom said, well, she's a, a theater kid, which is why the music connection and she's got this whole group of friends and they all want to take this class because she's loving it so much. And it was about six or eight kids. And so I started tutoring this group of six or eight kids. And then we finished that school year and they said, Ooh, this is great. Do you have anything else? So I decided I was going to put a second course together. The course now, by the way, is, is very codified. It's a 16 unit course and uh it's all done through very elaborate powerpoint presentations and actually during the pandemic it was kind of a hit because all the kids were stuck and everybody kind of was homeschooled during the pandemic and what i've learned is there are pretty elaborate homeschool uh groups that you can sort of market to and 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 teach so now you know when i when i do this course it's a it's a two semester course goes for a whole academic year i meet with the kids once a week for two hours and do like a, a powerpoint and it's gotten more and more elaborate and then the second course i created i i call it uh, musical voices no musical personalities and each week i select one artist and spend the entire two-hour presentation on that one artist. Uh, so in a way, one course is more general and moves kind of laterally. And the other course is horizontal in that it gets really in depth in one artist. But the artists I chose are very broad spectrum. Most of them are American. So Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Frank Sinatra, Elvis, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, Judy Garland, Pete Seeger, um, artists that covered a really broad spectrum of, of music, but that had really long careers and were influential in a lot of different ways for a long period of time. And in the second semester, we get more modern. So we look at people like um, Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, you know, going up through uh, David Bowie, The Beatles, Madonna, Michael Jackson. And I really enjoy teaching these courses. And what I want to now do is to create online courses because I've got the PowerPoints and uh, create online courses just for people that like Ken Burns documentaries. What's great about it is I've sort of gone to the corners of YouTube and found the most unusual and interesting videos to kind of bring to life what the points that I'm making in the course. And I continue to learn more and more about history. So I, I love that. The reason why I bring it up is uh, I have some close friends who homeschooled their daughter. And in the midst of all that, there came a book about it and a book about not so much the ins and outs of homeschooling, but the culture behind it, which was really interesting. But, uh, you know, whenever I see something about homeschool, it, it piques my attention because of them. Yeah. 
Well, it, some there's a religious element. Some people homeschool their kids for religious reasons. They don't they want to teach them their own thing on a religious background. But for me, it's um, in New York City. There's a lot of really forward thinking parents that don't want to put their kid into a school environment. And what's great about I mean, I started out doing it in person and now it's pretty much an online thing. So I see kids who are in Boston and Pennsylvania and Massachusetts, you know, yeah, and New York. I also saw something on your site, consultations with art instructors. What's that about? These are things that... <laughs> yeah, I know that, it's, it's uh, not your main thing, but it, it's right. just, I'm yeah. curious. I see them there and see the offerings and it's like, wow, what's this Yeah, about? I mean, I do, I do career consultations as well with with musicians and other people trying to, you know, get their full-time teaching thing together. So, and, and, you know, I've done a lot of drum clinics over the years, but these days, now that we're kind of getting back to it, uh, I, I go and do clinics and I find that it's maybe a little easier to sell if I'm, if I, if I do a presentation for all of them, say the music students, as mm. opposed to just drummers. So I use the material, or some of the ideas from the homeschool stuff as well, that it has a, a broader appeal. So earlier on, we were talking specifically about the drum set. I, I would broaden that to talk about the evolution of, of, of say, a popular music ensemble, you know, mm -hmm. from the marching band to the rock band and show how, over time, how that's changed and how elements, you know, for example, prohibition, you know, how prohibition influenced the evolution of jazz or how World War II influenced the evolution of big band or the Great Depression, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how the rise of the teenager uh, influenced the dawn of rock and roll. That without one, you couldn't have the other. Yeah, yeah, right. Interesting. You have a new album coming out. So you indicated that you learned a lot in this and not necessarily musically. In the process, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I thought, I mean, I, I know you speak to a lot of figures in the industry, but I don't know if you speak to a lot of uh, musicians sort of on the other side of that who are, you know, struggling with what it means today to put out a record in today's, in today's climate, which, you know, I had not done so. I mean, I, for, for your listeners that don't know, I, I make, I, I do a lot of teaching to drummers. I do a lot of um, performing. Uh, gigs, etc., and I have five books and three DVDs that are historically based. I also have this would be my I think third or fourth record essentially as a leader, and really the last one I put out was I think 2005. I mean it's been a very long time because I've looked at the music industry and I've gone well why why would I want to put out an album when you know music seems to be so devalued these days and and I and and you know, anybody who's put out an album as sort of a, an individual without, you know, doing this on their own, you really are responsible for all the costs and running the show and, and all that. So I had a lot on my plate and I didn't really consider it, but uh, I've been working with a trio here in New York as part of an educational thing that I was, that I've been doing, which I run um, a, a five-day jazz intensive for jazz drummers, jazz drumming intensive. I did it for four years in New York, and then we had to stop because of the pandemic. And then last year, there was a guy in Frankfurt, Germany, who runs a drum school who's been wanting me to come out there. So we put something together at his school. So I I bring this trio with me, and they are not, a, we, we do concerts and play, but we also, they are there during 
the sessions with the students, the students get to sit in and play with the, with the bass player and the guitar player and get feedback from them, which is a big selling point of the, of the event, you know, that they get to play with a real jazz, New York jazz rhythm section. So we had been, you know, every year we'd had our concert and then a couple times a year I would get some sort of an event, private party or something like that. And I was like, this is great. We have this, you know, amazing chemistry. And it, it was a chance, well, most of us, we work as side men and we do everybody else's music and we're there to support. And I really felt like this was a group uh, identity that was, was evolving. So I said, well, hey, let's, let's record a record. And what I did during the pandemic was I took the jazz intensive and I made it a three-day online event that I, that I taught and, um, the students were all over the world in, you know, uh, coming in on zoom or whatever. So we did, we actually did a, a concert for that. We, we did a live stream concert and we did it in a recording studio. And I thought, well, let's record an album, you know? So we did two days of recording and the second day we rushed to another part and set up and did the live stream and it came out great, but it was the middle of a pandemic. We recorded in August of 2020 and nothing really happened for another year. And then sort of jump forward to the end of 2021. I, I think I, you probably know, or I've told you my, I play at Birdland, the jazz club every Monday. And I'm part of kind of a, a show that's more leans a little bit more towards the cabaret world here in New York, which is a very strong scene, which sort of cross intersects you might say with with the jazz world but is a um but is definitely its own its own thing and there's a long tradition and history of it and i've gotten to work with you know people like liza minnelli and wonderful singer named marilyn may who's 94 years old i've been working with her for 10 years she's kind of a legend in that cabaret world although many people probably wouldn't know her name but um it's been it's been great and we also you know play a lot of jazz so there was a record label based in Nashville that was coming up to New York uh, and recording a lot of the artists in this scene, including um, Linda Lavin. I don't know if you know Linda. Sure. She was, yeah, yeah. she played Alice on TV. She's yeah. on a show right now, but she's a fabulous singer and has, you know, in addition to being an actress, she, she does a great cabaret show. I joined her band two or three years ago. So she made a record, the house band at the Monday night event. We made a, a, a Christmas record because uh, we do a Christmas show every year at Birdland that's become more and more popular. We're now touring with that during the holiday season. So, you know, it just kind of evolved naturally. I got to go to know the guys that were running this label. I think I did three different records for them. And I, I eventually had a meeting with them around Christmas time last year and said, I, I, you know, I got this record. It's done. It's sitting in the can. I'm just waiting and I'm trying to figure out if I should use a label or not. Do you know of any labels that would be interested <laughs> in putting out jazz, you know, because I didn't realize, I thought they just did vocal jazz. In fact, they did their, one of the other records is uh, with Jane Monheit, you know, mm -hmm. the, the great, great jazz singer. So, and they said, well, actually part of our mission is to do instrumental jazz and we don't have anybody. And since you're part of the family, you know, and we like the record. So that, that was kind of how that worked. So what's, been great about it is I have this little label and I have some partnership and some support in getting this out. And one of the things that I've learned, of course, the musical part of it we could discuss, but it's the business part of it that's very interesting. I think maybe for your listeners, one thing that I found very interesting is that today what 
for for most people other than say the taylor swifts of the world the the behemoths having a quote-unquote major label deal or major label we have major label distribution and what that what that means is and i I mean, the record just came out a week ago, so it literally came out one week ago. So we'll see how it goes. But what I was told, what they you know, said that they have access to by having, say, Virgin or somebody of that stature doing your digital distribution is that you will be, you will be open to much more engagement than if you simply, say, put it up on YouTube or Facebook yourself. I don't know if people have seen, I'm sure everybody has, you see a music video on YouTube and it has Vivo on it, V-E-V-O, right? Yeah. I never knew quite what that meant because it covered a lot of different artists in a lot of different situations. So what Vivo means is that your video was posted to YouTube, even though it's on your channel, it was uploaded by a major label distributor or major label. And that, the rules of the game are completely different for these people, you know, no surprise, right? Yeah. So also, for example, they can upload stuff into your Facebook page and things like that, that, that really open up your, um, your exposure. And the, the idea of course, is to try on places like Spotify and Pandora to get on, um, playlists, you know, curated yeah. playlists. Yeah. Where, you know, the editors put you in a certain thing and those things have been so, um, specialized now that you can really reach through being on some of those playlists. I hope the audience that is already predisposed to be into what you're doing. You know? So that's the idea. And um, maybe this is old news to, to a lot of people, but this was this was very interesting and new to me. And I would say the on, uh, one last point on this, that the most interesting part of this was that the label itself, the record label, would not sign me until they ran my social media numbers by the distributor. And until the distributor said, yes, this person is has enough, num you know, enough followers that we're willing to distribute it that was it didn't matter how much they liked the music or not you know yeah. that was the determining factor so i thought that was really interesting thankfully i've hustled my social media for a lot of years so my numbers made the cut <laughs> yeah it's been going on for a while unfortunately I, I think that actually might be stopping but uh you know it has been a basic criteria for way too long i want to hear the ongoing story about what happens with this so we'll check back with you as well as more his history of the drums because we probably only covered a very we can pick it up at the hi-hat next time you know yes. we'll go we'll move forward from the hi-hat from 1930. like with everything it's interesting to really find out the key points in the evolution I mean, it doesn't matter what it is it could be a microphone it could be you know a phone or it could be you know whatever it is but there are key points that change it from one thing to another change the use from one to another. And those pivot points are always interesting. Very much so. I mean, the, the introduction of the microphone took the, the most popular singer in the world from being Al Jolson to Bing Crosby. You know, it's like, yeah. could there be a greater difference in the way that those two guys sound? But it really was about the technology so somebody didn't have to shout to the back of the theater. You know? Yeah, and Bing Crosby's involvement with magnetic tape Oh, I see. Now you're, you're you're educating me. What was his what was his involvement with magnetic tape? Well, he was the person behind Ampex and behind magnetic tape actually getting a foothold in the United States. It was German technology. It was a wire recorder on a piece of, of wire. And then uh, Ampex came up with the idea of putting it on, on 
this magnetic tape. And the reason why Bing Crosby wanted it was because up until then, syndication was based upon making vinyl records and sending the vinyl records out to radio stations, which of course has its problems in that, you know, there's a lot of breakage. So uh, magnetic tape actually stopped, it, it enhanced his syndication. So he was a heavy investor in, you know, the early Ampex, which became, you know, a behemoth at the time. Yeah, the industry standard, I guess. Yeah, for a while. And not only in, in audio, but in video as well. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. And, and again, it's these funny little quirks you're not aware of. And when you find out, you go, oh, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, another, just to give you a super quick example, if, if, if you know anything about drums, you know that drums are always measured in inches. It doesn't matter if you're in a metric system country or any other country in the world, however they do their measurements, drums are always measured in inches. And the reason why is that, you know, Remo, uh, the, the drum head company is named after Remo Belli, who was the, you know, the founder. And he was involved in the early years of the transition from calf or animal heads to, to plastic heads. He was, there were a lot of wars at the beginning. He emerged the victor. And basically when the plastic heads first came in, it wasn't sort of the Buddy Riches or the jazz drummers or the bebop drummers that, that were crying for them. It was because they liked the calf heads because of the sound. And it was, it was military drummers and school drummers, you know, these, these enormous where they had to be outside. And of course, you know, the, the weather would affect, uh, you know, the, 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 tuning, the heads yeah. would stretch and they'd have to retune constantly. So if you're, you know, playing in a marching band in, in November out at a football game or December or January, I mean, it was a nightmare for the drummers um, if, if you were in the military. So, and, and of course, you know, bands buy hundreds of drums, not just one drum, you know, one drum set. So what Remo said essentially was, I'm going to make my plastic heads in inches. And if you want those, you need to make your drums in inches. And the entire world literally did that. Didn't matter what country they were from or what's measuring system. Because, you know, there, there wasn't, it wasn't just metric, you know, there, there were others. Japan had its own system and all this. So um, it's a fascinating story. And that kind of like changed everything. It's, it's You wouldn't think about it, but you okay. go to any country in the world. So, next next time we do this, we're going to pick it up there. <laughs> right. <laughs> great great always so great to talk to you man likewise really. daniel you can find out more about daniel at danielglass.com that's daniel glass d-a-n-i-e-l-g-l-a-s-s all one word dot com remember that you can learn all about the latest in music audio and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com there you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events that's bobbyosinski.com Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.